Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. In March of 1970, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, along with Neil Young, released their second studio album, their first album with Neil Young. The name of that album, Danny Moses, was Deja Vu. And it's fascinating because we're going to talk about a couple things to have me deja vuing all over the place. By the way, this is the On The Tape podcast. Danny Moses, who looks better each week. Dan Nathan, who looks slimmer, more fit, and more handsome each week. About midway through the show, we're going to speak to Dan Greenhouse, chief economist and strategist at Solus Alternative Asset Management. So why did I bring up Deja Vu? First of all, it's a great album. Teach Your Children, Our House, right? Helpless. All the things, but helpless is something I'm feeling right now. now. Not helplessly hoping, just helplessly hoping. That one? Yeah, you like that. I do. Keep going. I tell you, you're so good at this. Let's go. Who's that guy? Rosie, right? We talk about him David all the time. Rosenberg. David Rosenberg. Rosenberg Research. He's been a guest on the pod many times. So when you give somebody, what do they call when you give somebody like a hat tip to their work? You give them a hat tip. Hat tip. Yeah. Earlier this week, he put out something and he was comparing what we're seeing now to what we're seeing back in the late 1990s. And it's fascinating. Talk about deja vu. Here it is. And I don't want to get bogged down in this, but think about what we saw back then and what we're seeing now. Extreme sector concentration in the stock market principally technology, valuations hitting nosebleed levels, especially in growth stocks. We talk about it all the time. Coming off a crisis seemingly unscathed, back then it was long-term capital, now maybe Silicon Valley Bank, a very tight labor market. Guess what? Pretty tight labor market here. Coming off back then, 175 basis point Fed tightening cycle from June 99 to May of 2000, about a year or so. This is what really gets me, Danny Moses, and I want to stop here a prolonged phase of yield curve inversion that was widely viewed as a relic from the past. Think about what we've seen in the yield curve. Went from flat to 111 basis points inverted, back down to 40 or so basis points. Everybody's waving the all clear. Today, Thursday, we saw it go back to 1% inverted. And we had Steve Leisman on the show. I'm not casting aspersions. I've talked to a lot of people. The Fed doesn't look at it. It's not as much of a big deal. It's different this time. 
The same bullshit that I heard 23 years ago, we're hearing now. I got to tell you, it might be different this time, and I've used this comparison before. It might be different in so much that it's worse, because here we are 13 or so months into this inversion, the most inverted we've been in 40-something years, and everybody seems to think we're just going to go walking past all bells and roses. Everything's fine. I don't think everything's fine. You actually quoted Southern Cross. You actually just did a double Crosby, Stills, and Nash on the opening of when you did the no from David Rose. Yeah. I didn't even know I did. Exactly. Listen, it is what it is. People don't want to look at it. That's fine. When you see the Southern Cross for the, you'll for the understand. first time. Right. Yeah, when you see the inversion, something. let's get out of the United States for a second. Please. Let's go to what has happened here in the last 24 hours with the Bank of England, who obviously has much higher inflation, 8.7%, who goes 50 basis points, and now is at 5%. Okay. okay. Hold on. Oh. I'm sorry, Dan, because we haven't got Dan's voice. But let me say something. You're right. They have a much bigger inflation problem. They also have a much worse economy. Well, so they're they, making the decision that whole, inflation is a bigger problem than a slowing economy. Now they're in a situation where, remember, most of their mortgages reset in two-year increments, two- and three-year increments. We don't have that as much here. It's much less than it used to be. Part of the problem with the global financial crisis in the U.S. was that all these arms and ninja loans and resets were going on. So they actually have that problem. It's not devastating but it is going to slow their economy. So there's a direct correlation there versus here where people are locked in golden handcuffs to their home. So that's one. Norway raised rates today. Granted, they're not near 5% yet. I think they're 3.5 or 3.75. Turkey today, right? Let's remember the new central bank governor in Turkey came from where Goldman Sachs and First Republic Bank was just hired from First Republic to go to Turkey. They raised their short-term rates to 15% today. People thought they might go to 20 or 25. What happened? Lira plunged to all-time lows versus a dollar. There's a lot of calamity going on outside of this. So when we talk about just looking at the U.S. yield curve and try to determine, and I can have an argument that, oh, it's temporary. The aversion is going to change over time because if we do have the soft landing and not, the 10-year yields will eventually make their way up. The Fed will stop raising. The Fed will start cutting. We'll start to see it. I don't buy it. I'm just taking the other side of what you're saying. Listen, Rosie's bearish. I love him. He plays with facts. A lot of analogs, and we're going to talk to Dan Greenhouse about a lot of these same analogs that are going on. And the things that's always the same is what the investor chooses to pay attention to or not. And that behavioral finance aspect of mm -hmm. things, talking your book and so forth for bulls and bears takes precedent. Yeah. So this was a LinkedIn post. We'll put it in the show notes from Rosie. And I also like you guy, it, it caught my eye again. Dan Greenhouse is going to say that history doesn't always repeat, but it certainly does rhyme. And you wanted to focus on the yield curve inversion aspect of this note. Uh, listen, I love tech. I came into the business in 1997 covering internet stocks. Can you believe it? At a long short hedge fund. I watched this bubble inflate and I watched people just go all in on this. They were all in on it right until the very end. And then when it popped, it didn't just pop, it went lower and it went lower and there were fits and starts. And 2002 felt a lot worse than 2000, okay? So I think a lot of us have forgotten what a prolonged bear market feels like. But this comment from Rosie, I thought was really interesting. The smug complacency mm -hmm. in 2000 looks eerily similar to what we have on our hands today. By the fall of 2000, when the stock market was about to roll over, and the economy was seemingly resilient. And we keep talking about a consumer that is resilient, CapEx, that seems to be resilient and now has a new flair here. Everyone was asking back then the same question that's being posed today, where's the recession? The answer is the same. Have a bit of patience. It's coming sooner than you think. Guy, you strike me as a guy who likes animal you shows. You say that like we just met. The guy, you, you, you strike me well, as a guy. Well, because we never talked about this. Okay, go right, ahead. Let me start over. Please. You like gladiator movies? No, I, of that, course that's I, that was, I love that. Yeah, was you like movie. movies about gladiators? <laughs> yeah. Nature shows? Are you into it? What do you care? Of course I, I am. am. Are you watching this plan, Our Planet 2? No. Should okay, I it just be? came out on Netflix. Sir David Attenborough. Can I tell you something? You'll watch anything I, that he does. I love him. Right. He is a 
Think about okay. him. He's a hero. Like he's on Mount 97 Rushmore. Ninety-seven-year-old Mount Rushmore. I he agree. was in the original Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, right? That or his brother. This is Sir Richard Attenborough. Attenborough. Uh, Richard David. All, all yeah, the Attenboroughs look great voice. Anyway, okay. please continue. So, yeah. All right. So now this Planet Two has come out. And it's on Netflix. Now, of all the Discovery shows, I like watching some of that nature sure. stuff. I, can I tell they've, you, I they've outdone themselves. They took the best of the best production. Now, you're not going to believe what you're going to see. So here's what I've decided to do, to take Sir David Attenborough's narrative and apply it to the market. Please. Can I do this? No, it's okay. your show. It's your show. All right. Out in the wilderness, you find many animals. Among them are bulls, bears, and pigs. Bulls often herd together, feeling powerful, and during breeding season, they try and spread their influence out in the pasture. Bears, for the most part, tend to be gentle and tolerant animals. They hibernate to keep themselves safe and strong during trying times. Pigs, while they can't fly, are able to run and swim and do have an excellent sense of direction, but often become cocky and end up in the slaughterhouse. This is what's going on in the market. Yeah. So you're bullish now, right? If you keep staying bullish, you just want to maintain this market. And I would say the same for the bears that tried to maintain themselves in January, February, March. You get piggish. You get piggish. And this is not a bearish comment. This is to the bulls that are out there. To what you opened with, Guy, and people being honest with themselves, what they're seeing out there, recognize it. And if you own a stock, I'm not going to use any of the, your favorite symbols here, Dan. You own a stock that was you loved at $50, and it went to $100. So when you run a hedge fund, you ask manager, you have these risk tolerance levels. Did things improve twice as much? No. Okay. So you're, you need to take those positions down, at a minimum, in my opinion, to the exact size it was when it was at 50, if not lower. And by the way, shorts do the same thing. They fall in love. Short goes from 50 to 25. Shorts get smaller by definition when they get lower. Longs get bigger by definition. So again, I've always said, if you're bullish, the best thing you can have is short interest in a name because eventually the shorts will have to cover. So that dynamic of, you don't increase your short at 30, 25. I mean, you shouldn't if you do it. So that dynamic that's playing out with bulls, bears, and pigs, don't be a pig well, is what I'm saying. And I think, I'm glad you brought that up because people get mad at us. They get upset that we miss this and you're leading us astray and all those things. And it upsets me that people feel the way, number one, because we are trying to help. It also upsets me that, at least in my case, I've been wrong for a prolonged period of time in terms of the lag effect in certain things. But I'm glad you brought up that discipline. And, you know, we've talked about this a couple of times, Dan. AMD, it's just, a, it's an, I'm not suggesting to trade, buy, mm -hmm. sell this stock, but Again, we talked about this a number of times. I think it's important to bring it up. To your point, Danny, when AMD reported on May 3rd, the stock was $89. They reported a subpar quarter. Their guidance wasn't great. Stock traded down 10% the next day. It was an $81 stock or so. On that day or a day or so after, they announced some relationship or it was announced a relationship with Microsoft. They were going to make chips that would compete with NVIDIA. The stock proceeded to go from $81 on May 5th or so to recent levels of $130. That's more than a 55-0% gain on nothing but hyperbole. Now, people will say it deserves to be here. I guess it, in some ways it does because it's there. But what really changed to your point? And if you're not taking advantage of that, if you're just hoping that this will continue, I think you're trading wrong. Now, I missed it clearly. But think about some of the nonsense that's going on. And that's not a one-off. That's been going on in a number of different, not only sectors, but individual right, so stocks. So what's really important about that is that the company guided and the stock went to $81 yeah. from $90 in two trading days. And then a few weeks later when NVIDIA guided up, okay, so AMD guided down, okay, and they are competitor to NVIDIA. And NVIDIA had this crazy guidance. And I want to reiterate a stat, and I read this, that ByteDance, which is the owner of TikTok, okay, in China, they have already this year 
put orders in for a billion dollars worth of NVIDIA's high-end graphic chips, okay? That's more than all of China, not just ByteDance, all of China bought from NVIDIA last year. So when you think about the guidance that they just gave for the current quarter, the consensus was $7 billion. They guided to $11 billion in what now is embedded in the back half of the year of guidance. AMD, their inability to guide up in the quarter that came a month before NVIDIA's just gained 50% in a straight line in sympathy with NVIDIA. And you have to start thinking about what are we discounting? And I'm just going to make one other point here. And I know that you guys are going to explain away all of these other reasons, not you two, but some people listening here. The VIX just went below 13 for the first time. You ready for this? Since January of 2020, okay, for the first time. And when you think about the level of complacency, and I love that Rosie used the word smug. I've never seen so many investors who are smug about this new era of innovation that is going to, to use your phrase, alchemy out any sort of recession that is on, on the horizon here because we have a new thing, a new shiny thing right now. It's never different. Why do you think that AI is causing the VIX to be low? What I'm saying is watch your ass because the price oh, yeah, appreciation no. has already discounted a probably a lot of the near-term goodness. And with the VIX now at 13, it's showing a level of smug complacency to use Rosie's term that I don't think, I think there is going to be a meeting of the middle here at some point in the not so distant future. So that's my own point, man. And listen, I've had, we're going to have a conversation with a guy and it's going to drop next week, a guy named Dylan Patel, who runs semi-analysis. He's an analyst over there and he's super bullish on NVIDIA. And I had a half an hour call with him yesterday and the pod's going to drop, I think on Monday or Tuesday, Peter Bookvar obliquely made the intro. The guy's brilliant, and he's going to try to tell us why we might be wrong, but I don't think we're going to be wrong in the near term about this. But going back to the bite dance thing, okay, think about that. That is the double and triple ordering before the, the bans go in effect and everything like that. So a lot of this could be a total fugazi. And that's keeping up the entire stock market right now. And that's a really dangerous place to be. No, listen, I agree. And we don't, I don't want to get bogged down in the Fed. It's not about the Fed. But again, this week, Jerome Powell, I think he was as hawkish as he could possibly be. Some other people were trotted out there as well to talk about exactly that. There were some comments out there that don't expect a rate cut until maybe the back half of 2024. That's a completely different narrative that we heard earlier this year. Another couple rate hikes again. You know, that whole mantra of don't fight the Fed. Well, it worked clearly when the Fed was lowering rates and adding liquidity. It worked for a little while last year. It's not working now, but it doesn't mean it's going to fail entirely. What's really confounded me, Danny, and I think it's confused a lot of people, is the duration with which this sort of lag effect has held in there. It's not kicked in yet, but maybe we're at a point now where it all starts to come home to roost because... These Fed officials can't be more hawkish than they've been. You're watching jobless claims, initial jobless mm -hmm. claims. The average is starting to trend up. And if you look at the long, if that was a stock chart, you would buy the chart because it's starting to pierce through. And those things don't just undo themselves. That's going to be continuous. It's nothing catastrophic. We're north of 260,000 kind of average around that area on a four-week basis. So worth something to keep an eye on. And I think, again, I said before, I think people are rooting for a little bit of that, but not a lot of that here. Well, like with what the BOE did and what they did in Norway today, each going 50 basis points, those type things give a little bit of cover, I think, to the U.S., right, to the Fed that, hey, maybe we're a little bit ahead of the game. They both have inflation prints that are higher, right? Switzerland raised 25 basis points kind of as a 
token today, but the point is that maybe we're a little bit ahead. So on a relative basis around the world, yeah. again, you saw what happened to the FTSE when it happened today. Completely unexpected, by the way. Unlike telegraphing it mm -hmm. here, they went higher because of the CPI. But Today's so, a really yeah. interesting day. So we're yeah. like 15 minutes into the close on Thursday. And yesterday was the third consecutive down day for the NASDAQ. We haven't seen that in a very long time. And we were down 1.3%. Today, we're up a little more than 1%. Let's say we close right here. But what am I seeing? I'm seeing Apple at a new all-time high up 1.5%. I'm seeing Amazon just join the party here. It's had a six month high up four and a quarter percent. Mm -hmm. Google's up 2%. Microsoft is back on its horse up 1.7%. So they're going back to all the same stuff. But on the flip side of that, on a day where you saw all this raising all over the place, you saw Fed Chair Powell on the Hill reiterate his hawkishness. Look at what the bank stocks are doing. Look at JP Morgan down 2%, Bank America down 2%. Hold and on. so I think that's really, I just think that's really yeah. interesting. And again, and you see what's happening to crude oil today. Crude oil is getting shellacked. It's down four and a half percent. So think about that. So we made an argument, or I've even said it last few weeks, that what's going to happen if people start to come out of these financials and energy names, mm -hmm. right? Are they really going to go back into mm -hmm. to big tech? Yeah, yeah. The money's staying in the market. Yeah. The money is staying. So it's rotating, not going to cash, to your point, Dan, which explains with the VIX where it is and people can ignore or whatever. So they want to keep it. Now they're moving around into various sectors. But at some point, to the point you guys are making, there's just a level where it just it's just dumb. It just doesn't make any sense. And you've seen now a couple days in a row, not today necessarily in the NASDAQ, where Wow, this can happen pretty quickly. Very quickly. And where's the bottom in some of these names? If Nvidia was down 50 bucks, 70 bucks in a straight line over a period of two days, where's the buy point on mm -hmm. it? I hate to bring that name up, but my point is there's a lot of names like that. No, right? it's an important name, but just but it, AMD that gapped up to Guy's point, though, just I want to be really clear, it gapped up in sympathy when it gapped up 20%. AMD has just filled in that gap. It was 133 a week ago, it and it's trading at 111. That's right? painful. So, no, That's I know. the last, but that, you're right. But that you're has 100%. the ability to snowball, is what I'm saying. And so Apple and NVIDIA and Microsoft and Tesla, they're going to be the last battles fought. Today's a great example. Two big banks in two days have downgraded shares of Tesla. Okay, so Barclays on Wednesday and Thursday, Morgan Stanley, Adam Jonas. I hope you guys can see Danny's face here a little bit. And Tesla's up today. You know what I mean? So Is like it? downgrades don't matter of your most beloved name. But the names you mentioned, they have a lot of things in common. One thing they have in common is their reliance upon China. And Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State, who's not going to be confused with Henry Kissinger anytime soon, by the way, but it is what it is. That might Obviously, be a good thing, actually. I liked Henry Kissinger. Oh, really? He, he has not aged well. Dude, Neither he's have like, I. He's I mean, over 90. Continue. Yeah. yeah. I don't mean his looks. Yeah. I mean his well, politics. Okay. At any rate, we'll, stay, we'll keep politics aside for a second, but Blinken goes over there, has a meeting, says we're making progress. I expect him to say that. Meanwhile, Danny Moses, U.S. military, China military have no... There's no communication whatsoever. There's clearly the rhetoric is being jacked up. And then President Biden, an offhanded comment, basically, not basically, he called President Xi a dictator, which obviously didn't go over particularly well. I bring that up because U.S.-China relations are strained at best. China is clearly has aspirations to do something in Taiwan, which is not bullish. And all these companies have such reliance on China. Go back about four weeks or so. And look at what NVIDIA said about U.S.-China relations, the importance for them. You talk about things turning on a dime. Everything could turn on a dime. They're in Cuba. They're, they're, no, that, I know. That's a crazy thing. They've cr been there for four that. or five years, and they're building up a right presence there. That's the, They want that to be our Taiwan situation right well, off our coast. So anyway, that's I agree with you. Then the geopolitical back to the VIX is not being priced in correctly. Not at all. It's not going to matter until it matters. But you're right. The rhetoric is not good. 
They go over and try to make peace. There's still business to be done between the countries. Obviously, they try to separate those two things because commerce needs to transpire. It's very so hard. To, at a certain point, it's going to be very hard to separate. And we said this all the time. It's easy for companies to pull out of Russia when Russia is probably less than one half of 1% of their overall revenues. It's not particularly magnanimous. They're going to do what they well, got to do. It's also very clear that China is going to do anything they can to keep simulating. They keep easing and their stock market keeps going lower. Mm. And so like, their economy is not in a great space. And we'll put this in the show notes too. Bloomberg had a good piece out today, why prospect of USD coupling is getting serious. And it's interesting because they name a whole host of things here, but all of it is inflationary. And so the one thing I think that if the Fed is waiting for, to your point, unemployment to tick up because of demographics, because of reshoring, because of supply chains as a matter of national security, we might not ever really see that. And so to me, I actually think going back to how you started this bit, Guy, about all those stocks, other than let's say Microsoft and some of these other that are very reliant on China, that brings me back to Tesla. Think about this. In the last two weeks or three weeks, we had Elon Musk in Beijing and we had Elon Musk in New York meeting with India's Modi. Okay. And so think about how important those end markets are for consumer, not uh, India right now, but it will be for manufacturing. And ultimately someday it will be for as an end market, rare earth materials, the battery, like this Bloomberg article spends a lot of time on China's stranglehold on the EV market. This is something that's hugely important for Tesla. And I, again, so I think all of that stuff has like really inflationary implications, I think, for U.S. multinationals. You do you used to do a show at 5.30 on Fridays. Options action. You used to stand in every once in a while. From time to time. Yeah. I think after the three of you, that would be, of course, Carter Worth, Mike Coco Beware, and you, I was probably on it more than anybody else. It's probably changed since then. I haven't been on it in quite no. some time. But I bring it up because you guys would dissect what's going on, obviously, in the options market. There was a note from Larry McDonald, who's another esteemed... Bear trap port. Yeah. He brought up how these zero days to expiry options are now north of 50% of the overall options volume. And he pointed out some of the inherent risks. And he said, and we'll put that in the show notes, that he wasn't saying anything is necessarily imminent, but this is also a bit of a powder cake. He mentioned that whole Volmageddon thing we've seen before. And this compression of vol in the form of the VIX, I guess it's a good thing. And to your point earlier, Danny, it's not. And that's not meant to be glib, but things happen slowly then all at once. And something's going to happen here with these zero to expiry options. I'm convinced. And by the way, they seem to be working to guide the market higher or send the market in this trajectory higher. I'm sure the same can happen on the other way if they start playing these things on the bear side. Then everybody, I guarantee, right. will be up in arms blaming them, yet nobody says a word when it's working on the not. bull case. I actually texted Porter and Vinny yesterday, sent them a link to the options volume in Tesla in particular for the weeklies, it was it was insanity. insane. Relative to the open interest, it was just insane. It is what it is. It's not illegal, but who knows what, what's going on. But you're right, it can work its way the way down. You know what else Porter told me yesterday? This is why you can still make money on the long side, stock picking on things that you know are under the radar screen. Overstock, right? Billion dollar market cap, OSTK. And who cares, right? Okay, whatever. They bid last week, they were the stocking horse bid for the Bed Bath & Beyond digital assets, the IP, basically, the customer list, everything but the stores, which mm -hmm. are closing $21.5 million for the entire thing. So Porter says yesterday, the results are coming out today. I would probably long overstock here because they're stealing it. They assume some liabilities. Stock's up 15, 18%, right? I mean, on a 21.5 million, so they keep the name, whatever, they can plug and play. My point is that focusing on all this noise we're talking yeah. about, it takes up such an opportunity mm -hmm. cost and just a drain of other things to focus on. I'm not saying that's not what people want to hear. What do you mean? It's these opportunities, right? These kind of bottom-up, one-off 
on the long and the short side fall by the wayside because people become obsessed with trying to figure out, do they buy or sell NVIDIA here? Do they buy and sell Microsoft? Yet there's so many, a universe of other names where you can have alpha that no one is looking at. And that part of this kind of the non-meme world, I think has been lost. And so to be constructive, Dan, and when people like Porter and Vinny say, you know what? Screw that. We're spending way too much time mm -hmm. on Tesla, the world. Let's go spend time on this. What is the opportunity cost of the obsession, long or short, by the way, with somebody saying, there's so much else going on. Yeah, no, and I totally respect all that. And if I was sitting on a trading desk at a hedge fund and we were like managing money across different sectors and asset classes, geographies and stuff like that's the sort of granular work that you have to do, right? You have to have a macro thesis. You have to work top down and then you have to work bottoms up on the individual names. I think why we spend so much time on those other names is they are really dictating the course of the markets. Agreed. A lot of listeners that, that we have, they're in ETFs, sector ETFs or index ETFs or this, whatever. They want to know what's going on in the markets and you almost have to talk about them. And I just want to make a point about just how offsides I think some of this sentiment is. And again, I'm just going to talk about Tesla. There's a guy that I follow, his Patreon, I pay for it. He's an independent researcher. It's called Troy Teslike. I send yep. you some of his stuff. And he updates his models, okay, for Tesla, for the backlog, for inventories, and for wait, waiting time, okay? Right now in the U.S., if I asked you, okay, how many cars do you think are in the backlog for Tesla right now doesn't, in the U.S.? There's no fundamental, it doesn't matter. There's no fundamental argument to own but it. But you might but. say 50, 100, 300,000 or something like that, 18,000. 18,000. You know how many are in the backlog right now for China? This is per his work, and I'll put this in the 13,000. The wait times are going down. Mm -hmm. That they're like Not like, the wait times at the charging stations. Those well, are about no, to go and up. And they're, they're offering massive incentives, yeah. right, for the charging stations. This with all the news that they have to get the credits, right, to opening up their charging networks. And listen, that's a big win for them. There, there's no doubt about it. But it also means that the competition is coming. This quarter, that's closing right now. And I've been getting emails from Tesla because I'm on their email list. They're offering lots of different incentives right now. And so the margins that sent the stock to $150 in late April, and the stock's now at 264, mm -hmm. okay? They're not getting better this quarter and the guidance is likely to be worked. And if you think about the throw the China stuff in there, think about how China's trying to stimulate. Do you think the Chinese are going to be offering credits for Chinese citizens to buy foreign cars other than the hundreds of different manufacturers that make EVs in China? And so the last point that I want to just tie this all together yep. is the stock on this downgrade by Adam Jonas at Morgan Stanley opened down 4% today. It's trading. It's going to close at its highs. Okay. It's going to close up near 2%. Mm -hmm. The options volume. So it traded 250. It's going to close at 265. The two most Active options are the weekly tomorrow expiration 260 calls and the 265 calls. 125,000 of those have traded today. Open interest coming into today was 14,000 and 19,000, respectively. It is an all out mania in a stock where the fundamentals aren't really good right now. Line of demarcation, I think, if you look talking about margins for Tesla, is probably about 17%. I think the historic sort of the legacy OEMs around 16%. So that's coming to a theater near you. But when you started asking those questions, Dan, my response was going to be, why don't we just ask Markham, Danny? Because oh, clearly yeah. a lot of people are asking Markham a yeah. lot of different things. I was going to say, days. I'm going to get to that. I was going to say, Mr. Free Speech, Elon Musk kicked off Aaron Greenspan in plain sight off of Twitter. They just been presenting facts over time. He kicked them off last week. I just want to let people know that as well. Yeah. So Ask Markham. It turns out that Markham wasn't asking their clients, actually. Yeah. they were Their clients were telling them what they should put in their audit as it relates to valuation, as it relates to whatever it might be. And so they were the big SPAC auditor, right? At the time, they did over half the SPACs. You're talking hundreds and hundreds of time period between 2020 and 21. And 
lo and behold, they were overwhelmed and understaffed, but they took the business anyway. They made, I, I don't even know how hundreds many hundreds of millions of dollars. dollars. The fine is 10 million from the SEC and 3 million from the PCAOB. PCAOB is like the audit industry's standard. And they're not even a member of that. They paid them three. So $13 million, right? For what not admitting any wrongdoing, right. whatever. But let me ask you a question. What does this open up for all of the other SPACs have been out there. If you were a shareholder in some of these companies and you just, they just basically saw an auditor who didn't admit wrongdoing, I don't know, but these are the things that people will look back on years from now. This is probably the beginning of the cleanup that's going to be occurring, but these are the type of things where investors should care. They should care about this. Of course so, they should. And yeah. you're going to say, that's a small price to pay. And obviously I'm sure there are a lot of people that made themselves a lot of money, but Here's my question back to you. I'm not going to ask Markham, I'm going to ask you, is this a death knell for the company? In that industry specifically, your reputation is, it has to be everything. And if you're a company, are you going to go to them now knowing what you know? I don't think it's an Arthur Anderson situation, but listen, when you take on 159 clients in one month, right, and you get emails, which they showed, read the SEC complaint. You had partners saying, we can't do this anymore. We can't audit anything. They were overwhelmed and they knew it. So they were negligent in what, in what they did. Criminal, you know, I don't know. Negligent, absolutely. And listen, they got paid to do it. This is, let's go back to the ratings agencies, Moody's and S&P back in the financial crisis. AAA stamp next, AAA stamp. They're incented to say yes. Tell us what your interest coverage ratio is. Tell us what the support is for these CDOs. Tell us and we'll just, we're fine with that. That's what basically was going on here. So whether it kills the business or not, guy, I don't know. I doubt it. Why don't cynical. you just tell us the movie? Why don't you just tell us it? Why don't you just tell me? Hello and welcome to Markham Phone. Please tell us. <laughs> anyway, so who knows? But yes, that was something that was in the news as well today. So again. all right, we have a viewer. We have a viewer question. Oh, ask it. You do it. I want me to ask it? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I, mean, I, I think we're all spent. We're all spent. Are we spent here, Dan? No, I'm not spent. I'll ask the Yeah, almost, I think. Hold on. Oh, no, we don't. We have to talk about something else, by the way. What do we got? We got to talk about these Bitcoin ETFs, which have created a huge move yeah, massive. in Bitcoin. Dan, you don't really talk about Bitcoin anymore. I know you have OK Computer. You use it for yeah, that. We, but we do a little you bit. don't. But BlackRock, people think they know something. Yeah. If they went and applied for this ETF with the SEC, three other funds right behind them applying yeah. as well. Like maybe this cleanup of Binance and Coinbase is a step in the direction of cleanup. We talked about people are craving regulation to a degree to create. So you had Bitcoin rally from whatever, 25, 26,000 up to 30. To 30 yeah. And it's probably is a bigger deal because BlackRock, as we all know, is the conduit that do it by buying. I think that it's also a self-fulfilling prophecy to see yeah. that sort of volatility. And it, listen, like if BlackRock had a spot ETF on Bitcoin that you could buy, I just think a lot more people would own it. And there's also talk if they have to buy all that spot, there's going to be a lot of demand for it. I think what, that, what I've been consistently saying over the last, let's call it six to nine months, is that I would think of it in terms of, okay, it's got a half a trillion dollar market cap. This is just Bitcoin. And if you look at ETH, Ethereum has got, what, 300 or something like that. Think of it as like some sort of high growth, speculative sort it. of tech stock. And why wouldn't you want exposure to that? You know what I mean? Because it really is, you know what the downside is, and then you know what like the upside is. I think we're in a good place that all these losers oh, are off the Twitter. You're about to say I know, something. I was about to. All these losers are off the Twitter, all the bullshit, all the price targets, all the Johnny-come-latelys who came in there and changed their business models and this and that, reoriented towards that sort of stuff. But I had a, I was at a, a fintech dinner the other night in New York where there were some builders, there were some VCs, there was a couple people from the crypto space, places like Galaxy. I'm just to say they've just been heads down and they keep doing the stuff that they said they were going to do five years ago yep. three years ago and i think there's a lot of folks out there who feel that way keep an eye on some of them you also had the exchange launch right edx yeah. exchange yep. with fidelity yep. citadel by the way talk about being able to see orders and fill them before 
You yeah, dumb. I mean, listen, but, I, you've said it yourself. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's very few asset classes that get to a trillion dollars that just go away. Right? Correct. So, so anyways, we have yeah. to mention it yeah, because yeah, it is no a reason doubt. it's been moving. And listen, a lot of the smarter people that have been somewhat balanced, they deal with the volatility because they believe in the long-term prospects. I'm going to ask Got you it. each a question. Okay. Danny Moses, we were Sanford and Son fan. Absolutely. Loved it. Well, My favorite. Here I come, Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, it was really yeah. tremendous. Okay. Red Fox, yeah, two X's. It really was just brilliant. Yep. But one of my favorite characters was Grady. Yep. Remember Grady? Of course. It was his, like his buddy. I, yep. Here's a question for Dan Nathan. Were you a Pitch Perfect fan? Yeah. What's her name? Anna Kendrick. Yeah. Uh, she was great in that. That, was yeah. a, th that first movie was brilliant. Fat but. Amy is the is amazing. Her her name you can was, say Fat Amy because that's what you call herself. Why are you yelling? I'm just saying. I'm not fat shaming anybody. Yeah. I'm just yeah. saying. Because we got a question from... We don't have it from Grady from Sanford and Son. We don't have it from Anna Kendrick, but our question is from Grady Kendrick. As this it is how you out. got into this. That's how you got put that yeah. together. Grady right. Kendrick. Wow, that's amazing. That's how I hope my you guys enjoyed yeah. that. Of course, they enjoyed it. Who picked this question? Amanda. 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 Thank you for sticking with your market view, even though you may be temporarily wrong. That's true. I've stayed in cash, and I'm trying my best to be patient. It sickens me to see all these Wall Street strategists capitulate to the upside. It also gives me hope that there are people like yourselves who are willing to stick with your view and not be influenced by Pierce. I appreciate that. It would be nice to know when you would be constructive, Danny. What factors should we be looking for? Look forward to listening. More episodes. Grady from Georgia. Thank you, Grady. Georgia, go dogs. Yeah, so listen, if you're on the sell side, we've talked about this and you're bearish and you're wrong, you career lose your risk. job. It's career risk. So you've seen some capitulation. To me, like get everybody on one side of the boat. By the way, if you're bearish, the scary thing is when everyone comes to your side and you're bullish, it should be the other way around. We want to see valuations that make sense. I want to see these meme stocks trade back down to levels. Watch AMC, right? What's been going on. It's been getting destroyed over time. No one cares about it. Some people care about it. But to me, those are the things you kind of need to see to teach people, not a lesson, but to understand that fundamentals in the long term will matter. I've been through periods like this personally, right? I traded in the 90s, I traded in 2005 and six and seven before, and not to compare any period with this, but it all always repeats. And I'll say before, we, we're going to talk about it with Greenhouse. We talked about it here at the beginning of the show. There's a behavioral finance aspect mm -hmm. to it, right? Everyone likes to be part of a group and by, go on the same side. So it's painful to think away from the masses, right, in terms of how you should approach things. But if you stick to fundamentals over a long period of time, and as I said before the show, to take down your longs when they're going up, it's not fall in love, and the same on your shorts, and you can be somewhat of a disciplined investor, you're never going to get hurt either way. I'll so. take a shot at this. Doug Cass says all the time, price has a way of having changing people's opinion. And I understand that. And sometimes the price is the only thing out there to sort of base your decisions upon. So I understand how you would capitulate on price. Here's my answer to what would make me change my mind. The fundamentals are not getting any better. The fundamentals continue to deteriorate. If you just look around what's going on, the euphoria gets better, but the fundamentals don't. And at a certain point, fundamentals do matter. So with each passing day, it's my opinion, the market gets more and more expensive. People get more and more complacent, and that typically leads to something bad. So in order for me to be constructive, it's much like Danny just said, there needs to be some sort of capitulatory event where everybody throws in the towel on the downside. And if you don't think that's coming, if you think we can go on our merry way and these rallies will just feed upon themselves. You're just not paying attention to history. I guess just throughout my career, I started in a place that it seemed to be being contrarian, not for the sake of being contrarian, but understanding. And Danny, you make this point all the time, understanding what the other side of what you're, how your position is really important. So when I think about what I do here, Guy and I are doing market call Monday through Thursday. We're doing two on the tapes. I do OK Computer. We're on Fast Money. What we're trying to do is be as transparent as possible. And so 
The idea that traders stick to some sort of guy uses this term dogma, like we change our minds all the time. But what I try to do is really be thematic and really stick to my guns as it relates to broader thesis. I'm not going to change my view on a thesis because some strategist at a big wirehouse or some smart billionaire hedge fund manager who owns a losing baseball team has gone all in on some big tech trend or something like that. Because I know for a fact that those guys will change their mind on a dime. And they, you won't know about it until the 13F mm -hmm. comes out 45 days later. And so what we're just trying to do is show up every day, call it the way we see it here. We're not your hedge fund manager. I'm not your FA, not your stockbroker, this, that, whatever. I am a fun guy to have a beer with if you want to come and do that and talk the markets. And that's what we're trying to do here a little bit is talk the way that our peers talk in a professional sort of manner and be intellectually honest about it. And we are wrong a lot. We talk about it. And we fess up to it. I have sat on the desk as CNBC guy on Fast Money, and I listen to strategists, and I listen to analysts, and I listen to investors. They are gotten really good at talking out of both sides of their mouth. We will not do that. That's I guess that's the promise that we right. hope to live up to right here. And blessing we will and be a curse. Wrong. Blessing yeah. and a curse. I may not be your hedge fund manager. I may not be your FA. But as Val Kilmer said in his brilliant portrayal of Doc Holliday. I am your Huckleberry. I love that. Isn't that That's great? Fantastic. Isn't that great? great? I love it. And when we come back, your Huckleberry will come in the form of Dan Greenhouse. Stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to On The Tape, here with Dan Greenhouse. Welcome back, Dan, from Solus Alternative Asset Management, where it's a multi-billion dollar fund. You are the chief economist and strategist. We had you on a few months ago, obviously. A lot has changed since then. And just to remind our listeners out there, and now viewers out there, that we go way back a long time, the days at Front Point, the days at Seawolf. And you've always been an incredible friend and a great asset to us. So I appreciate everything that you say, your opinions. Even if they change and you turn bullish from time to time, you're still a friend. And so with that, Andre, well, what's going on? I, I, can't, I can't start without saying to, to I, I think I said this last time I was on, that I sort of am a, a strong believer that finance in general catches a lot of flack for incorrect reasons. We're all money-grubbing, inconsiderate, capitalist, this, that, and the next thing. 
some of that is accurate, obviously, but it is also an industry populated with really nice, good people. And you are always yeah. mine, so to speak. Thank and you, I'm, Dan. I'm, yeah. and by the way, oh, you're talking, Danny. You're talking yes, Danny. Danny. <laughs> All right, what I would say is also backed by popular demand. I know a lot of folks see you on CNBC. You go on our good friend Scott Wapner's show quite frequently here. But I think we got a lot of great feedback when you were on in February. And it's interesting, Danny, going back to, yeah. and I've gotten to know Vinny and Porter really well through Danny over the last couple of years. And also we, great guys. Oh, we, I, we, I love talking to them. And they talk the way that I was brought up on the street. And it's interesting. Like, I, I think a lot of our listeners don't really get it. And you were on the sell side, but you're also obviously on the buy side. When you were at a fund where you're paying a lot of commission and you're participating in deals, you are in demand, right? So you have your broker list back in the day was really big, right? And so you end up gravitating towards people that they see things the way that you see things and then that get you and get your strategy and all that sort of stuff. And I've heard this again and again from people who've known you from the sell side. You're one of those guys. The three of yeah. them, Vinnie Porter, Danny, we I used to go and fight with, like, we were not Sinatica. Well, of course no. no, no. We'd sit over lunch agreeing. for an hour and have at it. The truth is the people with whom I developed the strongest relationships from the sell side were often the people who wanted to hear the other side of yeah. the argument with some credibility and some force. And the three of them were no exception. And it's, that's not to say we disagreed on everything, but these were not- Always good. These always were always fun conversations. All right, so, so uh, yes. speaking of the other side. Yes. Do you turn bullish on me here? What do we do? No, it's not that I'm bullish. It's that back earlier this year, you had to recognize the turn in the technicals in the market. And you had to recognize that something was going on. We always talk about bull markets begin here and bear markets begin there. No one in real time sells at the top and buys at the bottom. That's not a thing. But after the low in, in October, within a few months, the technicals had started to bear out that something was happening here. Typically in bear markets, you don't get X percentage above the 200-day moving average. We did. Typically in bear markets, you don't rally 10% this far out from what would be in retrospect a low. We did. And so you had to get at least less bearish. And I think in retrospect, obviously that's been borne out. Now, what do I mean by that? If you're a trader, maybe you want to take off some of your shorts, or if you're a long only, you want to maybe take off some of your hedges. This doesn't explicitly mean you need to switch your whole book from being short to being long. But I think with the benefit of hindsight, but certainly at the time, there were reasons to be a little more optimistic. Right, let me push back a little bit on that because in early February, and you were on with us, I think, again, I think it was like the first week of February or so, things really felt pretty decent. The S&P got above those kind of November, December highs. So we had a new higher high. I think there was a lot of focus on that 4335. That was the August 2022 high that failed, obviously, and we made a new low or so. But the regional banking crisis in March threw a lot of the technicals out the window, if you will. And so I just wonder, we had this consolidation in April and May. We went sideways in a very tight range. We just broke out. I think a lot of it is just an enthusiasm about a thing that you and I, we've all seen again and again when the market gets fixated on one thing, and that's this AI thing. I don't know, man. I feel like this could be just another false Hold breakout. Hold on, let's back up because we just skipped ahead. I want to go through something because your point you made, the end of last year, people came into the beginning of this year, bearish position, right? Underweight tech. The consensus financial. was sure. Yep. It was, so incremental things started to occur. When I say incremental things, non-bearish things, and I'm not necessarily bullish, but the world didn't end on January 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th. And let's be clear, you and I understand this game and Dan does as well. The chase kind of, of started course. to happen and the hand got forced and we had kind of this, what appeared to be a head fake of a rally start to diminish its way through mid 
February. We peaked, I believe, on Groundhog Day. If and the China thing was big, too. And the China thing was big. Totally reopening. So there was reasons to become less bearish maybe on the macro front. It kind of fed on itself. Fast forward to what Dan just said about the banking crisis, and I've been talking about this now for over a month, that it turned out to be a huge liquidity pump into the system sure. as opposed to something trained. So with those in mind, I think you have to, to your point, and I think you do a great job of this ebbing and flowing with what the markets are giving you, not to force things. What is it giving you? What is it telling you? And kind of ride that. So just start us from, and we had you on in February, but start us and take us through the narrative, what you've seen and where we are right now. And then I think we can go back and deal with certain points in time. I think a lot is true in what you said. And if I remember correctly from February, when we talked about this, my argument was this seemed to me not to be the start of a larger banking crisis, but a series of one-offs, which at some point, a series of one-offs becomes a trend. But it seemed to me to be a certain series of banks that handled things poorly. And to your credit, you talk a lot about the Fed flooding the market with liquidity, so to speak. And even though the Fed's holdings of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities have continued to decline, the traditional definition of QE, there's no doubt that the balance sheet basically unwound all of its unwinding. The BF. TFP or by the F and dip, whatever the thing is called, has been increasing. So yes, keep that, going. That's please. right. And now yeah. we've retraced yeah. some of the give back of that as well. But for me, I think what happened was you looked around and you said, okay, this banking crisis, so to speak, isn't nearly as bad as perhaps some of the naysayers were saying. And so now I'm going to return to something of a status quo position, which at that point had been, I need to get long and longer because I'm losing this market. It's getting away from me. Now, admittedly, to beat a dead horse here, we know that up until very recently, particularly the end of May, this was largely, not largely, entirely seven stocks. What you've seen lately is a broadening out. The mid caps, the small caps, even the smaller names of the S&P 500 have caught up. But I wanted this, one of the reasons I'm excited to come on at this moment is because I, I find this argument, it ties into Savita Subramanian's appearance on Fast Money the other day, but we'll get to that in a minute. With respect to this idea that breath broadening out is somehow positive, what immediately struck me is the historical, I don't want to say ignorance, but the idea that somehow broadening breath is automatically a good thing. It, it occurred to me, one of my favorite talking points on the sell side about this point was 2000. Now, we all know the stock market peaked in March of 2000, give or take. What most people do not know is that by September, the S&P 500 was basically unchanged. The peak was like 15,670. And then by September, you were at like 1550. The market was basically unchanged from March until September. The sell-off from September through the end of the year was pretty dramatic and began what became 0102 and so on. What nobody knows, clearly based on what's happening on TV, is that twice as many stocks were in an uptrend at the end of 2000 than was the case in March of 2000. I want to say that again. The stock market was down, call it 15% or so, by the end of the year in 2000, and breath was broader. Something like 60% of stocks were in an uptrend compared to 25 or 30% back in March. So you got a broadening out in March of 2000. Just by the end of the year, Cisco and Oracle and AMAT and Nortel and all the greatest hits of the yeah. day that were all up infinite percentage points over the last couple of years, they had collapsed. The rest of the market, despite rallying, was unable to hold up the index. And then by the spring of 2001, you got the Nortel warnings, you got the Intel warnings, yeah, the Fed some micro. Too, remember, the, the, yeah, the of course. List. But yeah. I just mean this slavish idea, this the fact that broadening breadth is inherently a positive isn't always the case. And I don't know if that's definitely going to be the case this time or not. I'm just saying this is much harder than some people are making it out to be. So another analog yeah. to compare it to that's back right. in that time period. So the yeah. other thing that happened was, admittedly, earnings in the first quarter weren't as bad as feared. Sure. Give, give the bulls. Although I will say that Fed fund futures, from what people thought they would be 
in the future now versus where they thought it would be in the future three months ago are actually much tighter. Yeah, it's, it's been remarkable how much the market has discounted or ignored exactly. this, what's happened to so the So one area where you and I first met and talked about was housing back in 2007, sure. 2008, 2009. This is the opposite, right? This is bad housing. I would say bad housing data, more from a transactional perspective than price or anything like that, just because there's golden handcuffs around. You talk a lot about housing. It's an important part of the economy. Sure. I've seen you tweet about it, write about it. Talk to me because I think that is top of mind right now because it's sending mixed signals because we know rates should have a bigger impact. I what don't do think it's sending mixed signals at all. I think the housing market has been just amazing. Now, obviously- New homes though is a bit of- No, that's right. Listen, no, we know this, something like 85% of homeowners have a mortgage rate under 5%. No one is going to, unless they have to, opt out of a 5% mortgage to get into what is called a 675 mortgage or, or any number at that level. But the builders, I don't want to date this podcast, but KB Home reported, Lennar just reported, and both of them said something along the lines of the same thing, which is their customers are basically now settled into a higher for longer environment. And that activity, buyer activity and traffic is reflecting a, not a complacency, because I think there's a negative connotation with that word, but an acceptance that rates are just higher and I need to do what I have to do in the market. It's, it's so been funny, remarkable. Though, but lots of rose colored glasses on this. So I was sitting at and looking at KB Home. We were talking about it on Fast Money's desk. This was Wednesday night. We're taping this Thursday into the close here. And their operating margins were down like three and a half yeah. points. But better I mean? than expected. But slightly better than expected. But they're talking about this demand which was a little like a softer than expected operating margins were, but then the supply demand scenario. And then I think this is the absolute worst time to be looking at home builders after the run that they have had. And you've been on this trade. A matter of fact, this is an area that you and Guy, and I know Vinny and Porter have come on and said that. But if you think that unemployment is the last piece of this puzzle that the Fed is trying to solve for with these other two 25 basis point hikes that they have actually signaled and reiterated that they are going to do in 2023. And if we're going to have unemployment off of 70 year lows, okay, going above 4% at some point in the back half of this year, I don't think that you want to be buying home builders right here. Does that make any no, sense? No, I you? think that makes perfect sense. And this is another opportunity to talk about the past, which is my favorite part yeah. of being a market strategist. Everyone looks around and says, X is happening. Y is happening. The market doesn't care. This happens repeatedly and throughout history. And since we're talking about the builders, you can really don't have to go back that far. When you look at the 2000s expansion, the builders themselves peaked in early 05. Building activity peaked later in 05. Prices peaked in 06. And then thereafter, you had the financials, for instance, trading lower for all of 06 and all of 07. Over the course of 2007, you had New Century. You had the Bear Stearns hedge funds. Early 08, you had the Jerome Curvell guy and the fraud that was subsequently Fanny exposed. Fannie and Freddie. Fanny and Freddie. Well, IndyMac and Countrywide were the first half of 08. Greatest hits. You really bring them out. Because yeah. part of why I think clients liked me was this is the type of perspective that I think most people don't have that someone like me can provide or a strategist in general can provide. But my point about all of that is all of that happened in 07 and 08, back to 05 with the builders. And by the end of August 2008, the stock market was less than 20% off its highs. Everything we just talked about and mentioned, the sell-offs, the nationalizations, the bankruptcies, and the stock market was only about 18% off its high by August. Forget January, February, or March. You looked around with your hair, the economy's hair was on fire. And the stock market was like not down that much. When you look today for the people who want to be bearish, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't be. I'm saying 
there are historical parallels where we ignore stuff until it happens. One of the things that is comparable is you name some of the greatest hits, and a lot of them were reliant on warehouse lines from banks to go out and produce mortgages and then turn around and sell it to them. We're seeing in real time banks pull out of the auto lending sector. Banks are pulling out of several lending sectors. Commercial real estate, they're pulling out of. Well, right? not, not, they so will, not yet. They, but they are. Some of them have stopped lending, period, to deal because they know they have a lot of refinancings coming up. They're going to have to deal sure. with and put capital there. Again, not comparing anything to 2008. I think the bulls like to say, this isn't 2008. Nothing will ever be 2008, That's not a right? When I was talking before about builders, I was really talking about the data, not about the stocks. I'm not trafficking them in there right now. I wouldn't be short them. Obviously, I think they've run a little too much, but it does. This economy has always been driven by the U.S. consumer, and you are starting to see pockets, obviously, where they're getting strained. Now, is it a disaster? Absolutely not. But you track the consumer fairly closely, right? If you look at that data. Sure. So you tell me, as a percentage of GDP in this country, right, it's the biggest amount that there is, the only thing that matters, feels like we're getting a little extended. And if that's the case, to your point about how these things go in order, how these things go maybe lockstep, it always ends up happening at the end. Where are we in the consumer from a one to 10, 10 being the healthiest and one being the least healthiest? And what trajectory are we on? Because to me, that's all that matters. Yeah. At this point, I think the only thing that matters is the labor market. We, everyone's focused on inflation. I don't know why it's coming down to what level remains to be seen, but that part of the story is playing out and we can quibble about whether this is coming down fast enough or the, they're, are they measuring it properly because this isn't in there. That story is playing out. The consumer remains incredibly resilient because the labor market remains incredibly resilient. In retrospect, one of the things Savita said on, eventually we're going to get to yeah, this yeah. specific topic, but one of the things she said on Fast Money the other day was something that bothers me a lot. And I think Savita's great. I have nothing negative to say about her, but this idea that we've been waiting for this recession for a year, or people have been calling for this recession for a year, I don't think that's accurate. You heard what I said to her. Yeah, I, yes, of course. My point is, for, I'll speak for myself, my assumption was that the recession would be from back last year, my assumption was that the recession would be sometime in the middle of this year. That now does not seem to be the case, to state that somewhat obviously. Part of the reason, of course, is I think a lot of people, myself included, misjudged the level of what's called excess savings throughout the economy. I think we underestimated the purchasing power on the part of the consumer, despite consumer sentiment being quite poor, probably because the price of everything is going through the roof. The money that we dropped up helicopters into people's bank accounts has proven more resilient and allowed the consumer to be stronger for longer than we originally anticipated. Yeah, and again, I feel I've known her for so long. I think she's a great strategist. The team is fantastic. You know, and, and my point is, and Guy uses this expression all the time, we've just alchemied out recessions, right? Yeah. So like you just talked about helicopter cash. It was for the corporates. It was for individuals, for everything. So we just, we never had that recession. We go back and we look at some of those other recession indicators when the 210 spread inverted in 2019, the economy was slowing, right? Do you remember that? And then we did have the black swan event and we threw, you tell me, five or $6 trillion of fiscal and monetary stimulus. And that's why this period has been so difficult. But I think it's also important to remember, and Danny and Guy and I started talking about this every week in January of 2021, when we started this podcast, it was all coming. We started to see the euphoria around SPACs, among unprofitable tech, around crypto, around this narrative of Web3 and NFTs and all, and it all started coming undone. And so to your point about 
the last battles fought. And then ultimately when the big tech guys joined the party, that's when the bottom fell out, right? In the end of 2021, when the Fed signaled that they were going to raise interest rates to battle inflation. So to me, I think it's interesting. The 2022 story seemed so orderly in many sure. ways because most of the euphoric crap had already crashed. We were waiting for the big guys to join the party. Now they joined the party, but the fact in which they've come back so quickly and your breath thing that you started this conversation, I think is really important because I've heard this data again and again, that it's not common that the leaders of the last bull market will be the leaders in the next bull market. But that's where we are right now with the NASDAQ up 30% of the year and the S&P up 15% of the year. So going back to your point about 2000 and the analogs there, could this be a very similar sort of setup to what we experienced back then or to 2008 when you talked about how far we were off the lows when Bear Stearns went under in early March to where it got to by late May of 2008? Listen, my general view is that history is a very important input into how you should think about market cycles, both economic and investing yeah. cycles. The history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And the more knowledgeable you are about the 70s cycle and the 90s cycle and COVID, the more you'll understand when you see things happening now. And those of us that have been around for 20 or 30 years, or God forbid, those of us who've been around even longer, guy. Yeah. perhaps guy, yeah. it provides context. But I generally also think the history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme is also instructive in the sense that nothing repeats. And I don't think that we have enough cycles to say that the leaders of the last bull market can never be the leaders of the next bull market. And I don't know that maybe we're not living through a mid-90s type internet boom, productivity boom. Mm -hmm. I, I want to leave the productivity story alone. But from a market standpoint, I don't know. Maybe 35 times sales is the right number because they're going to grow sales at an exponential pace. I don't know that's inherently incorrect. I, now, listen, we don't do growth. I don't do growth. So I'm making no comment about the validity of valuations or those names in general. But I'm saying there aren't enough examples historically to say definitively X can't be Y. Yeah. But if we go back and say, okay, the recession, there could be an earnings recession without an economic recession. You'd, and by the way, you, no, by the way, I don't think we've had it yet. I think we're going to have a double dip of some kind, but I will say this, when you look back on a recession, it's two quarters, negative GDP, whatever, Not a thing, but okay. the, whatever the thing is, the OECD, whatever they it's decide not to the do. OECD, but okay. What, whatever. Okay. Yes. Oh, you can correct me in a it second. Does, but, it doesn't matter. It's, we're joking. But my point is that I still think to your point, the stimulus and the Fed pumping, we're still dealing with a lot of global liquidity splashing around the system. And that's a very impossible hard thing. But behavioral finance is the one constant that we've talked about. How, sure. how people behave, how consumers behave, how investors behave, those are always the same. And so if you're a bullish person and you see Savita come to the bullish camp, that's not good. You don't want that. I don't know. Let me finish. You don't, you want, you want everybody to be bullish? Who is the incremental buyer that's going to come in, right? If you want to capitulate, great. And again, timing is everything. Timing is everything in life. Timing is everything in the markets. It can make people look dumb on both sides. Question for you. Buy side hat, sell side hat of how you view things. Not how you view things, how you act on things. I think one of the things coming into the year, simplistically, you could observe is that back to back down years for equities are incredibly rare. And you could make a case that simply being down 27%. I was on Josh Brown's podcast around the lows. And one of the things I said is historically, PE multiples contract by about a third in bear markets. We're down about a third. This was in October-ish or so. We were down about a third. From a valuation standpoint, you did most of the work mm -hmm. around the lows. I didn't know that would be the low. In fact, I thought we'd go a little lower still, but you had done most of the work in 22. And what happens is when, you, when the calendar turns, and the recession everyone thought was going to happen maybe in the first quarter, God forbid, the second quarter looked like it wasn't going to happen. God forbid or God willing. I don't know. 
Sorry. No, no God willing. I, recessions mean job loss, yeah. and I don't want anyone to right. ever lose their job, right. specifically me. But when it became clear that maybe some of those worst case outcomes were further out, then there is a reason for equity. And listen, at the end of the day, the market bottoms before earnings bottom, and it looked like maybe the second or third quarter might be the worst of it. And so you could construct a scenario, we're getting bullish around the end of last year, early this year was the correct thing to do. But what I come back to something that we mentioned, which is the labor market and the Federal Reserve and this, that, and the next thing, there is a narrative out there that we're having something along the lines of a rolling recession. It was in housing, now it's in manufacturing, and by the time it gets, I'm making this up, but by the time it gets to labor, housing will have bounced, which it's doing, and manufacturing will catch up. And so this is a $20 trillion real GDP. It's very hard to get into a recession, which is why they happen so infrequently. And so the bullish narrative is that this is playing out over time along the lines of Mike Wilson's rolling bear market thesis, I guess, in conjunction with that. I don't know. You're answering like a sell side or not a buy side, by the way. So I go back to the I'm going to be honest. I have completely forgotten the question. And now I'm just rambling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but on the buy side, and you obviously advise your portfolio managers. We're a single manager platform, but yes. Advise a money manager yes, in-house. And you do the same thing you would do as if you were on the sell side, if you had one client, right, on the sell side. I'm saying you're advising the same as you would right now internally as you would be externally. The question is, do I dial up or do I dial down risk? Correct. And coming into the year, you could argue, I want to dial up risk. Got it. Now, Brad Gerstner, yeah, I saw him. Me. He said something that's so appropriate for a buy-sider on, on halftime one time. They were interviewing him. He Close was, your eyes and just buy? No, he said something along. Scott asked him about, are you going to sell something? Cloudflare, or Skyworks or something, Skynet. And he said, with the caveat that five minutes later after the show ends, I could change my opinion and sell. This is what I would do. And I think that's really important for investors to remember when you see people on TV, particularly those from the buy side, my view is X. But if the facts change, my view is going to change. And when we talk about was a perma bull or so-and-so is a perma bear, that's the, exactly what you don't want to get locked into. You want to be as flexible as possible. And so even though I had spent all of 22 privately and publicly saying this is not going well, Sometime around the turn of the year, there's a reason to get tactically optimistic. What you run into now as an investor, forget valuations and all that, forget earnings. At the end of the day, is the Fed going to have to crack the labor market to get the last little bit of inflation out of the system? And conversely, is the Fed willing to crack the labor market to get the last little bit of inflation out of the system? That is, to a large degree, the only question that matters. Let me ask you this, because you just described this, this kind of rolling recession. I think it's a really interesting thing, because the longer we don't have a recession, it just plays into that soft, no landing sort of scenario, especially with the stock market kind of confirming it at this point. The investors seem okay with the Fed funds above 5% with declining inflation. And you start thinking about what real rates are, and then at some point, you're going to get back to start revaluing some of these big companies that have driven a lot of the performance of the S&P 500. We're just not there yet. But is there a scenario, and I think you are so correct, none of us want to see unemployment to go up to 4.5% in a mild recession. That would not be a mild recession, I don't think, given where savings and consumer credit is and everything like that. But is there a scenario where because of demographics, because of reshoring and deglobalization and some of these dynamics that we've seen post-pandemic here, that maybe unemployment is going to be lower for longer and maybe inflation never gets to where the Fed continues to say they want to see it back at 2%. Maybe the reset is 3 to 4% or something like that, and we're going to have higher rates. I'm just, I'm just trying to play this out because a lot of those doomsaying narratives about how we get to the next recession or it's nearly impossible that we get out of this unscathed, Maybe they're wrong. I don't know. Maybe that's what the stock market Listen, is saying to us. The doomsayers year. are usually wrong. 
Yeah. Forget bears. The doomsayers are usually wrong. And history has borne that out. Just real quick before I answer the question, although I'll probably forget it by the time I'm done rambling, about the market ignoring X, Y, or Z. This idea that somehow markets are inherently forward-looking is not totally accurate. And the 1990s recession is a perfect example. We went into recession in July of 1990, and we're in recession until March of 1991. July of 90 to March of 91, something like that. The stock market did not peak until July of 1990. And one of my favorite talking points is on the day the stock market peaked, it was like July 15th or July 16th, 1990. On the day of the stock market peak, which again was like July 15th or 16th, 1990, the front page of the New York Times, people walked into the office, the front page of the New York Times headline, something like a third of U.S. economy representing half the population is in recession. That was the front page of the New York Times on the day the S&P 500 hit its peak, which means people came into the office, saw a third or whatever of the U.S. economy was in recession and bid up stocks to its highest level ever at that point. This idea that somehow it, the stock market is always correct is not borne out in reality. The stock market hit a high in October of 2007, and all the things that we listed before had already happened. There were ample reasons to be worrisome, and yet you still rallied up to a high in October 2007, and I could go on and on. Very quickly, just to digress, because I have ADD, on the earnings side of things, in the 73-74 bear market, the high was Jan 73. You didn't bottom until Oct 2004. In Jan of 73, EPS for the S&P 500 was like a buck 80. At the bottom in October of 74, EPS was 30% higher. EPS went up almost the whole time. You didn't start having EPS contractions until 1975. You go to a trough multiple. The, the, right. This is not easy is what I'm getting at. Yeah. It's trading and investing is like hard. And if it wasn't hard, as we mentioned before we came on the show, we'd all be on each other's yachts. And yet we're not. All right. And, so before we get so, out of here, so we sit here today. Summer solstice, beginning, yay, beginning of summer, June 22nd. What are you allocating here? You've, you have money to put to work right now. Where are you going to allocate right now? What sectors you're looking at and what's your bond portfolio look like? More importantly, because that'll tell me how you view the mm -hmm. kind of bet. What, what I can say is where we have found things to do is in the energy space. This is well known at this point, although we've been doing it for several years now. The energy space has shifted into a capital return story. They went from investing 150% of cash flow to 50% of cash flow, dividends, buyback. That story remains true now for a lot of the names. And so that's where we have found things to do. And related to what I said about the consumer, the consumer space has been attractive. There are things to worry about right now. When you look in the labor market, like the percentage of people that are quitting their jobs is starting to go down. The work week is starting to go down. Jobless claims are starting to go up. You're starting to see things about which you would worry over the next, call it six to 12 months, let's say. But from an investment standpoint, there are some themes that have played out really well. You look at some of the restaurants, some of the smaller cap restaurants, although obviously like a Chipotle has done phenomenally well. And I'm at no point saying buy or sell any of this, but some of the restaurants have done well. Some of the hotels have done very well. Some of the cruise lines are some of the best performing names. There are things there that have been going on the backs of the strong consumer. And as long as the consumer holds up, I think probably a lot of those types of things would keep working. But again, as I mentioned, you're starting to see the inklings of a cracking. That's what I asked you at the beginning of this about the U.S. consumer, because those things are going. And by the way, some of these companies have done an amazing job managing their balance sheet, managing earnings. They've passed on some of this inflation, I think that can go on I, for so long. If you and, look at every consumer stable company, yep. almost everyone, Kellogg, General Mills, et cetera, Post, et cetera, et cetera, prices up, volumes down. This is ubiquitous and clear. Part of the reason why consumers are, I think, upset. You like energy, you like some consumer I'm stuff. saying where we have found things to Okay, do. what about in the bond market? What bond, treasuries? Treasuries, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean corporate, yeah. No, treasury market, yeah. Uh, you can we talk do, about 
AAA corporates. We know. do not. We do spend okay. no time so in AAA. Talk about treasuries, just in general. Yeah. You have to have a view. Listen, I think it, you, Dan mentioned earlier. Dan Nathan mentioned earlier. Since we're all Dan, um, Danny, but it's fine. That I think the risk now, and the risk always has been, that inflation gets a little more entrenched, which implies higher Treasury yields than might otherwise have been the case. But I think what the bond market is telling you now is based on how we see things, we being the market, the long end, the belly to the long end of the curve has settled in at a level that seems to the bond market in general reasonable. And to be clear, forecasting the long end is like really not an easy thing to do. And one of the best charts everyone passes along is the Fed funds rate or the 10-year and where the futures market was forecasting it with the dot. And it's been wrong for 30 years. But that said, what the Treasury market is telling you now is that things are settling into where we think they're going to be. The short end of the curve is where there's something interesting. And the juice there from a trading standpoint is, because of a duration difference, is not as attractive. But the two-year is like way under the Fed funds rate and certainly where the Fed funds rate is going to be if they hike another 25 basis points. That is an unusually large spread. And so I think the short end of the curve might be incorrect. I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but might be incorrect there. In which case, the twos tens curve, which is already back to minus 100 or so, might be a little more inverted. But I'm not advocating a trade one way or the other, other than to say the short end of the curve looks like it's underappreciating what the Fed has done and what they still might do. All right. So for stocks here, so again, you laid out why towards the end of last year, early this year, it seemed that maybe we were discounting a whole heck of a lot of stuff that wasn't going to happen. So here we are. It's basically mid-year. And again, we have the NASDAQ up 30%, the NASDAQ 100 up 38%. We have the S&P 500 up 14%. We're still below the all-time highs from the NASDAQ in November of 2021 and the S&P 500, which is 4360 or so down from a high of 4,800 in January, 2022. How do you think you make money in the stock market the second half of this year? Because again, to continue to buy into the mega cap tax, that, that seven stocks that are $10 trillion in market cap, 25% of the S&P, 50% of the NASDAQ, 100. That's a tough road to hoe from here, especially when you think about how parabolic the moves are and going back to this whole notion of, it seems like every strategist that I speak to, they like energy. They like healthcare that hasn't worked. So that's value, right? They some like healthcare some has stuff, worked. right? In general, yeah, yeah, look no, at the major ETFs that track them. It, it just seems like- those, You run a hedge fund. That's why you go long and short. But money. a lot of our listeners, like to yeah. them, it's a bit of a monolith. But to you Dan, know what I mean? can do that. And so I'm just curious, like hear this really the last point here. For our listeners who said, okay, Dan, Danny, Guy, you guys were great in 2021 and 2022, really bad in 2023 as far as listening to us on a daily or a weekly basis. I don't really know how you make money. To me, I would wait for another move lower in the KRE, and I think there's some good value there. I would wait for the XLE, maybe another break below there. I could see some good value there. I would say the home builders, to your point, they are literally bottom left, upper right, 45 degree angle. Get a nice 10% what Dan has over to there. Say. I'm just throwing some stuff out. But like to me, I can see places where you want to buy some of this stuff that's exposed to AI that after some fear put back on the market. So I'm curious to where you think. Yeah, I don't want to comment on the tech because again, that's yeah. not what we do. Yeah. And there's... But you do agree that it's consensus that everybody, everybody says energy. Everyone has said energy for a year or two. Strategists look at it from a screening standpoint. Yeah. And I think there were reasons from a macro standpoint our argument is more micro. Which they weren't can... good reasons, actually. So people were the most bullish when crude was at its highest, when, what you know what I mean? When, well, when, you forecast when, out. when the fear of the Ukraine, sure. and literally that's upper left, bottom right over the last year. Yeah. I think now what we're supposed to be doing as investors, instead of pillorying this person for being bullish or this person for being bearish, I think we all have to take a step back and say, really, is the Fed going to win or not? 
And it's so annoying that despite the fundamentals and all the stuff that we talked about and the trends in this space and that space, at the end of the day, at the nucleus of this, the center of what we call the concentric circles of risk, yeah. is whether the Fed is going to win or not. And I think when you look out over the next six or 12 months, the issue isn't, you said the recession would be here in December and here we are in June and it's not. Okay, great. But now what? I think every hedge fund would tell you we underwrite every investment we have every day. Every time we talk about it, it's would I buy it now? Mm -hmm. Would I sell it now? Not yesterday or the day before. And now you're asking yourself when the Federal Reserve comes out and says, we're going to hike two more times and the street still doesn't believe them. There's really only one or two economists on the street, I think, that have two forecasted hikes. Oh, everyone else is either zero or one. Is the Fed going to have to do what they think they have to do to crack the labor market to get that last two percentage points or whatever out of the inflation data in order to bring it back to target. If they do, then they're going to crack the labor market and all the types of things that we talked about are going to come to pass. And they're just simply going to come to pass six months or a year later than was originally forecast. Mm -hmm. And when it happens, you tell me, the royal you, tell me what that means for risk assets. Well, you're going to tell us because you're going to come back uh, I was about to say, the podcast. We'll have you in the fall. We will be either north 10% or down 10%. From here, there's no question. We're not going to be in this area. We will have touched at least up another 10 or down 10 from here easily, in my opinion, because I think um, it's going to play out over time. And I know you know that you're talking, seeing trends in unemployment. You're right. That's what's going to have to crack for the Fed to stop. But careful what people wish for, because that's going to come with, I think. Uh, just on that point, point, I'll end with January of 1990 and February of 1990. We created 200 plus thousand private sector jobs in Jan and February of 1990. We were in a recession in June. Got it. All right. With that, happy note. We'll have you back, Dan. Thanks for coming on the tape. Thanks, Dan. My pleasure, guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.